talk to you about something that in about 2005, I started working on what I'm going to preach tonight. Uh, 2005. I've been reading through the Bible for many years, and it just kept coming to me about how, when, especially in the book of John, where Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I got thinking, there's commandments in the New Testament. Almost everybody here tonight knows about the Ten Commandments. First four of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship to God vertically. The last uh, six of the commandments deal with our relationship man to man, person to person, horizontally. Uh, Jesus defined it more in two commandments, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, all thy strength. And that was the greatest commandment. And the second greatest was to love thy neighbor as thyself, which basically summarized the first four and the last six. Those Ten Commandments were a condensation of 613 commandments found in the Law of Moses to the children of Israel, specifically to the children of Israel as a nation. And so... In the New Testament, when Jesus came, he came to fulfill the law. He was the only one that ever did. He was perfect without sin, impeccable, able as God manifests in the flesh to die for all who would believe. And I got thinking, where are those commandments? How do you know? I mean, I believe the whole New Testament is for us. I believe the whole New Testament is for us. I know that because I believe the Old Testament is for us also. How do I know that? As you have in the Bibles, in Timothy's, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You realize when he wrote that, there was no New Testament. When he was talking about all Scripture, he's talking about all 39 books of the Old Testament. Uh, they're for our profit. They're for your help. They're for your encouragement. I mean, it was God that made the law. There's nothing wrong about the law. In fact, Paul said the law is just, holy, and good in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And so he never criticized the law. He just, he just knew that nobody could live up to the law. And the law is made clear in the book of Galatians that the law was brought around as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ in the New Testament. The law was basically brought up to show how evil you are so that you'll go to God for mercy. And if you look at the law, it makes you feel bad. It makes you feel like, man, I violated this, I violated that, I violated this. So what do you do? You go to God. It drives you to God. It's a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. It drives you to God for mercy. Well, the Old Testament, they had a sacrificial system set up in foreshadowing. They sacrificed lambs, and those lambs foreshadowed the Lamb of God that was to take away the sin of the world in John 1.29. And so finally Jesus comes the Lamb of God. And in his uh, words are found, Jesus' words are found in Matthew through, if you may say he's the author of the, I would say this without blinking an eye, Christ is the author of the Bible. And so is the Holy Spirit. And so is the Father. But the three are one. And so there's nothing wrong with saying Christ is the author of the Bible or the Holy Spirit's the author of the Bible. We know that. The Father also is the author of the Bible. And so it's basically God's word to us. So generally speaking, the entire Bible 
are the commands or contain the commands of God. Not all the Bible is, some of the Bible's narratives, some tell stories about what happened, and those are not really commands. So how do you find a command? How do you find a command of the New Testament? And speaking just of the New Testament. The New Testament was written in, written in there, there's two kinds of Greek. There's classical Greek, that's high, and then there's Koine Greek. The word Koine simply means common Greek. Common Greek was the business language of their day. It was, it was what they did in the marketplace. They talked in Koine. When they wanted to speak in high literature, uh, they spoke in, in the high Greek. And they were somewhat different. But the common, it's interesting, the Bible is written in the language of the common person. The Greek language was from 300 B.C. to 300 A.D., very, very common. And, well, that's what it was called common. It was, it was, it was where what people spoke in the business language. It's like a, similar to what maybe English, English is <clears throat> worldwide today. They call English the business language of the world. If you want to do business internationally, you learn English. Basically, you learn English. I mean, people go out of their way to learn English so they can communicate with the business language of the day, and that's kind of the way Koine Greek was. And so God had the Bible written in there. Now, when I first went into Greek class, and we, they, the first day they tell you to memorize the alphabet, that's a big assignment. Then they begin to give you the uh, verb forms that you have to memorize. And so in, in, in I'm going to say just Greek, I won't say Koine every time, in the Bible Greek, there are six parts, six parts of a verb. You have the stem, you have the tense form. The tense forms are, and you get this, present, imperfect, aorist, future, perfect, and pluperfect. Now, what is that? It's, present is, I am untying. Imperfect is, I was untying. The aorist, I untied. The future is, I will untie. The perfect is I have untied. The pluperfect is I had untied. Now, you people that aren't into English hate this because uh, it's, it seems too too complex. But you, what's amazing is you use these forms whether you know it or not. When you speak English, you or in Koine, you, in Greek, you would use this whether you understood the technical part of it or not. There's a, so there's a stem, there's a tense, there's a voice. The subject's relationship to the verb's action. You have an active voice, a middle voice, and a passive voice. You have the active voice is he hits the ball. You have the middle voice, he hits himself. The passive voice is he was hit by the ball. So you have those three different kinds of voices. Then you have the mood, how the speaker portrays the verb's relationship to reality. You have the indicative mood. That's the speaker portrays the verb's action as a reality. He did this. You have the subjunctive mood, which is the speaker portrays the verb's action as a possibility. He might do this. So the subjuncting is he might do it. The indicative is he did this. And then you have the imperative. There's only three moods. The imperative mood is the speaker portrays the verb's action as a command. So you can go through the Greek New Testament and you can identify all of the verbs that are imperative, that are commands. And of course, then the, the thing, a verb also has a person, first person, second person, third person, and a number, singular or plural. So those are the six parts of a verb. Now, you English people are all over this. You're saying, yeah, man, I understand this. I never understood English till I took Greek. Greek 
finally made sense of English to me. It's crazy. I don't know why they didn't teach me English like they taught me Greek. Had they taught me Greek like they taught me English, I would have understood English when I went to college. I went to college, I had to go to the dum-dum class for English. Here I'd spoken it all those years and still was like, didn't understand the construction of it, how it was put together and all that other stuff. So when I took the Greek, it made like, it, it was like the day, like the lights turned on. I was like, this makes sense to me, man. This is all real necessary because this is the reality of us speaking. You people in this room all use these different things. You use the tense, the voice, the mood, the person, and the number. You use it all the time. You don't know about it. You wouldn't be able to take a test and pass it, but you use it all the time in common speech. So tonight we're going to, so what I did is I thought I'm going to go and, and uh, find out the imperatives of the New Testament. Well, now, that's a massive job, and, I'm, and I went and found somebody that had already done it. Now, that's the first thing I did was search around for somebody that's already done all the work. And I found somebody had done it, done all the work on it. I checked it out. It was accurate with what he said. And so I, I began to go through the imperatives of the New Testament, or if I may say it this way, the commands of the New Testament. Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. That was the mood of the verb. Keep my commandments. So what are his commandments? So I started in 206. I finally got it together in 206 and began to teach it in prayer meeting. Some of you were in prayer meeting from 206 to 210. It took me that many years to get through the commands of the New Testament. You probably are scared right now because we're not going to try to do that tonight. We're just going to do the outline of this. But I, it, was, it ended up being 300 pages, full pages of work that I was able to teach in prayer meeting from 206 to 210. So it's worth going to prayer meeting. You never know what's going to happen in prayer meeting. Some of my best work I've done in prayer meeting to the smallest crowd. It's not the size of the crowd equal the quality of the work. It's just however God uses it and however God moves me to do it. In fact, sometimes in prayer meeting, I talk about stuff I wouldn't talk anywhere else about. And so it's important if you, if you can make it, to make it to prayer meeting for sure. It's a good service. It's only one hour. And we're out 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock, maybe just a little before 8 o'clock. You have a time of prayer if you want to stay. We want you to pray. We pray. I always stay, go back in the business office with a bunch of uh, people. We pray together, little groups of people put together. Let me give you some verses in the New Testament that talk about us keeping his commandment. I've, I've just given you John 14, 15. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 2, he says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So he told, Paul tells the Thessalonians, he says, You know the commandments that I gave you. So he said, so your responsibility of knowing the commandments is on you. There's gonna there's a there's a police officer here tonight. And if I if you pulled me over, I wouldn't want I wish one day you would. I really would it'd be a great thing, you know. Pull me over and I say, Oh, officer, uh, you said you didn't realize that you just blew past the thirty five mile an hour sign, you were going fifty five mile an hour, and I said, Oh officer, I didn't see it. And he'll say, well, I'm sorry, but ignorance of the law is no excuse 
How many heard that before? Yeah. Trouble is I heard from a police officer. <coughs> Ignorance of the law is no excuse. I'm sorry you blew that sign, and I'm real sorry to write you this $250 ticket, but you're going to get it. And that'll help you remember to look for the speed sign. Amen? I told you the time I was running down behind Coconut Point. There was a four-lane highway behind Coconut Point. You know where it says, Ken. It's four-lane, and it's 40-mile-an-hour. You ought to sit there. You'll be busy. Half our church. <laughs> so I'm going down, and I'm not thinking. I pull down that you're going to Coconut Point. You know, I go the back way. go to Coconut Point. I'm in the Coconut Point. Pretty soon, that ring, ring, ring. I didn't look back. Police officer pulls me over. I pull over. And uh, he says, do you know that you were going 55 miles an hour in a 40 zone? And I said, I absolutely was ignorant of that fact. I was thinking about something else, wasn't paying attention, and I'm guilty. <clears throat> and he was going to write me a ticket. I said, before you write that ticket, I got to challenge you with one thing. He said, what? I've never had a speeding ticket in my life. <laughs> and he stopped. He came back to the window and he said, how old are you? And I said, oh, at that time I was about 65. I said, I'm 65. I've been driving since I was 15 years old. I've never had a speeding ticket. He said, if that's true, you're not going to get one today. And he let me go. He let me go. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Didn't break my record, my sterling record. And someday I could get it broken, you know. I'll, I'll be a sad day, but anyway. So ignorance of the law is no excuse. I'm sorry to say this, you stand before God, he's not going to give you any not going to give you any mercy because you didn't know something unless unless you just got saved and you got killed. You didn't have time to read the Bible. Then he's going to give you you're going to have some grace there and there's grace and mercy. But generally speaking, if you've been saved for a while and you know this preacher has told you over and over, you got to get the Bible and you got to start reading. Don't start in the Old Testament. Don't start in the Old Testament. Do not start you won't even understand the Old Testament. You start in, the, in starting Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you want to know about Jesus. First thing you want to know about is Jesus. Don't you? That makes sense to you. You want to know about Jesus, the Savior. So you got to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John five, six, seven, eight times through each one of them. And you begin to get a clearer focus. As the more you read it, the more it becomes clear to you who Jesus was and what he was about. And then you read the book of Acts, the first hundred years of the church. Then you can read uh, Romans through Revelation, really, which is how to live the Christian life. Revelation is what's, how it's going to end. What's funny to me, people get saved, they go to Revelation. They want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. By the way, with this Israel war, don't be overly concerned about this Israel war, about being some, you want to nail what prophetic event. We are too close to the event to figure it out. I can just tell you that. Historically, nobody in history is able to figure out their own history. Now, you may be able to look back at World War II now and figure it out real easily, but you're, out, you're outside of World War II 70 years. But those people who were in World War II, that was happening as it was putting together. They didn't understand all that. And you won't understand your history either. You're too close to it. And so don't, over, don't spend too much time, don't spend too much effort wondering what kind of war is going on. Is this the end of it? Because let me say this, what is going to be is going to be. Whether you know it, whether you don't like whether you like it, whether you don't like it, uh, history doesn't swing on my hinge, whether I know stuff or not. So, hey, I'd be better off to spend your time figuring out how to be a soul winner, figuring out how to change somebody's life for good, figuring out how to get the word out to your neighbors. 
And so he says in, in, in John 14, 15, if you let me keep my commandments, he says in John 14, 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, it is he that loveth me. In John 15, 10, it says, if you keep my commandments, you, uh, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, says, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that these things that are right unto you are the commandments of the Lord. First uh, John chapter two verse three and says, "Hereby we know that we know Him." That's security, by the way. We know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. So if you're not paying attention to what Jesus' commandments are and you're living kind of haphazardly, you may have spiritual insecurity. You may you may not you may say, "I don't know whether I'm saved or not." I mean, am I saved, preacher? I'm not saved. Well, the way you're going to figure out whether you're saved or not is reading the Bible, learning His commandments. And when you learn the commandments and obey the commandments, with that gives you an assurance. You with me on that? So assurance comes with, with knowing His commandments and doing them. Obedience is the very best way to know that I believe. It's the best way. Miss Miley, where are you at? Amen. You taught me that song. We ought to sing it together sometime. Obedience is the very best way to know that I believe. First John 2, 4 says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I've met a bunch of those folks. I've met a bunch of things. I'm saved, preacher. I got saved 12 years old. Haven't been worried about or keeping God's commandments. I may meet them when they're 50, 60 years old, and they say, I'm, I've been saved at 12 years old. Let me tell you, I wouldn't want to be that boy when you die, because the Bible says we know that we know him if we keep his commandments, and the Bible says if you say you know him and don't keep his commandments, you're a liar, and so pretty much what's that tell you? Now, that doesn't mean, well, preacher, I'm not perfect. God's not talking about perfect. He's talking about your heart. Where's your heart? My heart is, hey, my heart was that I wanted to obey my mom and dad. Overall, I wanted to obey my mom and dad. Did I? No, there was a lot of times I didn't obey my mom and dad. But in general, I obeyed my mom and dad. That's where my heart was. I loved my mom and dad, wanted to obey my mom and dad, their commandments. But sometimes I violated those commandments, and guess what happened? He had to chastise me. They had to chastise me for violating so that I would learn not to do it. And that was, a, that was an act of love from them to me. You mean those, those, those sessions over the hassock? Were, were sessions of love? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And so in 1 John 3.22, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. You can couple that with, with Psalm 66.18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So both Old Testament and New Testament says if you're out of the will of God, you're not going to get your prayers answered. People say to me sometimes, I can't get my prayers answered. Well, they ought to examine, am I in obedience to the commandments of the Bible? If I'm obedient to the commandments of the Bible, God said you're going to get your prayers answered. If I regard iniquity, which is, a, which is lawlessness, which is doing it your way, not God's way, if you're regarding that and outside of, the, of being an obedient child of God, don't expect God to answer a bunch of your prayers. Not going to do it. Okay? And so that's the source of the whole study that I did 
And I thought, because it's been 12 years ago, 13 years ago now, and it was only in prayer meeting, I thought at least tonight I'm going to do one message on the commandments of, of the New Testament and give you some examples of what those things are. So in the New Testament, Jesus raises the bar of holiness. In Matthew 5 through 7, he repeatedly interprets the law of Moses in the spirit of the law, not in the letter of the law. You understand the difference between the spirit of the law? You may not. You wouldn't necessarily know this, but you'd understand the difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. If I'm traveling back of uh, Coconut Point and Chad's parked in behind the trees completely hidden where he can't see him, and I'm going 41 mile an hour, technically I'm speeding. And he could, I may be wrong on this, they may have rules about it, I don't know about, but technically I'm speeding 41 mile an hour. You could pull me over and say, you were speeding, I'm going to write you a ticket. Now you go before a judge, he may say, oh man, that's the letter of the law. But I'm going to give you that you're in the, you're in the, you're within five mile an hour, you're in the spirit of the law, we're not going to ticket you. You get the difference. The letter is one mile an hour over, the spirit could be five, or if a guy's in a good mood, Ten, if he doesn't want to do the paperwork. <clears throat> I, I go for anything. So Paul, and Apostle Paul, so Jesus deals in the spirit of the law real, real good. And I'll give some examples of this. Paul deals with a concept of letter versus spirit in the book of Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians, take your Bible if you would do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 through 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 through 12. That's one of the clearest comparisons in the New Testament and the whole Bible between the letter and the Spirit. You'll not find any better place in the New Testament on comparison between what is the letter and the Spirit. He talks about the letter of the law, the, the, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, as compared to the Spirit of grace in the New Testament. This is what Paul's doing. He's comparing the letter of the law against the spirit of the law, which Jesus, of course, talked to us about in the 5th through 7th chapter there. And so I begin to read verse 3 there of chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter, not verse 3, but... Okay, let me say it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Example. If you try to obey the letter of the law of Moses, you're going to be found a transgressor. He that offends the law in one point, James 2.10, is, is guilty of all. So all of us under the law are sinners unable to obey the law. You're, you're guilty. You deserve the full weight of the law, which is death, by the way, okay? But he says here, under the Spirit, he's talking about the Spirit, the Spirit giveth life. Christ came, I, I think, Vito, you said it in John, or Romans 5.12, whereas, whereas sin came upon, uh, see, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what you do up here. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Does that mean I can't be saved? No, because God's grace comes through Jesus Christ, who paid our, his, our 
penalty for our sin on the old rugged cross and was sealed by the resurrection as the Savior and as the Messiah, and he offers us uh, grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, not keeping the law because you can't keep it. God saved me by sheer mercy and grace. And what's that make me? Grateful. Grateful, real grateful. Real grateful. And I want to obey his commandments, not out of duty, but out of gratitude. You see the difference? I don't have to obey. I get to obey. That's the New Testament. We get to live under the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we get to serve him. Woo, that's big. It's not that we have to. We're not trying to do it to gain our salvation because that wasn't possible because not by works does any man should boast, but we gain our salvation by his simple by simple childlike faith in the Lord who, who died on the old cross, took my place in an act of mercy for me. While I was yet sinner, Christ died for me. The letter versus the spirit. But Paul goes on in phenomenal detail. He says, but if the ministration of death, he's talking about the law of Moses, written and engraved in stones, the Ten Commandments, was glorious. He said that was glorious. So that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit? So here we go with a comparison. He calls the law of Moses the ministration of death because what the law of Moses did was condemn people as, as violators of, the, of God with a, with a punishment of death upon them. But in the, in the New Testament, we have a same ministry, another ministration, a ministration of the Spirit, be rather glorious. He said, if this was glorious, how much more the ministration of the Holy Spirit when you get saved, how much more is that glorious? Verse 9, for if the ministration of condemnation, that's the Old Testament, be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. So you have the ministration of condemnation, ministration of righteousness, ministration of of death, ministration of the Spirit. The letter, the Spirit. The comparisons there is just phenomenal. And he goes on to say, For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by the reason of the glory that excelleth. In other words, the glory of the grace is so great over the glory of the letter that you almost don't even notice the letter anymore. You're so into grace and so into the glory of it. For if that which was done away, and that was the letter of the law, was glorious, much more that which remaineth, that's the law of the Spirit, is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And that is as clear as anywhere in the New Testament, the comparison. What a shame it is for Seventh-day Adventists to go back to the letter. What a shame it is for Messianic Jews to go back and mix mix the law of Moses with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a line of demarcation, brother. The law brought us to Christ, but now that we're with Christ, we're not under the law anymore. Even though we're not under the letter of the law, but we're under the spirit. And I'll show the difference between those two. In other words, we in the New Testament have a higher standard of conduct, both internally and externally, because of our motives are what is being judged, 
not just our actions. This goes back to the police officer stopping me for one mile an hour over. He says, you're only going one mile an hour over. They don't stop you because your motive is you want to conform to the speed limit. You're just a little off, right? But if you're going 55 miles an hour over a 40, you, you, you're, you're, your motive's bad. You're, you're you know, breaking the law on purpose and not paying attention. Consequently, you have to come under the occurrence of that uh, judgment. We, so as a Christian, we have a higher standard. God's look, if you look at the, uh, Jesus, Jesus took nine of the Ten Commandments and took them from the letter to the Spirit. He said, it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But, the, but I say unto you, if you look on a woman that lusts after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's letter, spirit. Looking is internal. Thinking is internal. He took the law from an external obedience to an internal obedience. You see that? He, he, and by the way, in the New Testament, we are under a much, you would think, I don't know about you, but when I read Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, I think, whew, I'm glad I don't have to remember all that. I mean, you know, uh, three times a year I had to show up in Jerusalem as a male. I had to bring my sacrifice. Had to remember all their feasts. Had to remember, you know, that's a lot of stuff to put to, put to your mind, but to do and all. I think, man, I, thank you, Jesus, I'm not under the law. But I'm under a higher standard than they were because now Christ cares about what I think. He cares about my motives. He cares about a purity of heart rather than just an outward duty. Uh, you know, ladies, you can clean your house and you can do your dishes and you can, you can make your meals out of duty. Or you can whistle while you work and do it out of grace. I get to cook for him. I get to clean for him. I get to keep the house nice for him. I get to, I get to, I get to. Woohoo! Which do you want to be? So, with this in mind, let me break into a few examples of a New Testament uh, command. The first one. And I don't have time to do very much. I don't have time. I got five to do, and that's too many. So I'll do a couple, maybe maybe two, maybe three, but we'll see. The first command I see in the imperative. Now, this is the verb mood of the imperative in the New Testament. We find it in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That is a command. The mood of the verb. Don't maybe do it. Don't possibly do it. This is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Blessed Father. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. So he defines what light is. Light, obviously, is God. God is light. Let God so work in your, in your being that he causes you to produce good works. Now, good works in his definition, not our definition. The Bible tells you what good works are. Why to share the gospel is a good work, I guarantee you. To read your Bible is a good work, I guarantee you. There's a lot of good work to help the poor is a good work, I guarantee you. And so... 
There are certain things about we just know God's for it. That's what we want to stay focused on. Don't get on the fringe. Stay on what you know. Stay with the big stuff. And, and, and by the grace of God, fulfill his will. Let your light so shine before him. And it's before men. Now, I'm going to try to define a little bit on that. It's command of Jesus. Light is no good unless it shines before men. Light is no good as self-serving light, but before men. People say, I believe my religion's private. Well, you may believe that, but God don't. He says, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go brag about Jesus to everybody you know that he saved you as a wicked sinner out of the depths of hell. Go brag about it. Tell people you're born from above. Well, you don't have to shout and yell and scream like I do, but you can give them a gospel track. You can say, a lot of times I give gospel tracks out. I tell the people, this is the best news I've ever heard. And they look at me like I'm loony. Because how many people have come up to you and said anything is the best they ever? You know, this is the best ribs I've ever had. You won't hear that very much. This is the best anything. You don't hear that, that verbiage. This is the best I've ever had or the best. Any. People don't go around throwing that around unless they're, unless they're pandering you. But if you mean it from your heart, you're not going to hear that. So I tell these, I look them in the eye and I say, you know, this is the best news I ever heard. Christ died for me. And they say, okay. I get it. I, they don't know why, who I am. They remember some nut, nut case. Light is good works. The works, by the way, are plural. Let your works. Works. It doesn't say works. It says works. That's, that means... Uh, that means simply it's not singular. Find a few good works. Make sure you know what they are. Make sure they're Bible solid and put your hand to them and never look back. I decided at 18 years old I was going to pass out gospel tracts. It was a decision. I knew it was good. I knew it was good not with me or you. It was good with God. To share the Word of God with other people I knew was just absolutely fundamentally solid good work. So I said, I'm going to start doing that. So every, I laid floor covering. I would go to, on the railroad, I started on the railroad at 18, did on the railroad, passed the guys out in the, in the shanties, used to put it in the shanties and the pornography they had on the wall. Our, our wallpaper was pornography, 4X pornography. So I'd take those gospel tracts and I'd put them up on those pictures up there that they plastered. I thought if the devil can do the wallpaper, I can do the wallpaper. And it started just passing gospel tracts out. I started with This Was Your Life, Chick Tracks, Jack, Jack, Jack Chick, a, paint, a sign painter did those years ago, tremendous tracks, really. Did Jack Chick Tracks, and I evolved the various different tracks uh, through the years and moved around. But I said, I'm going to do that. I'll find a good work and do it. Let your works speak louder than your words. When I laid floor covering, I did about five jobs a week. That means I went to five homes a week. If they let me in for four, five, six, seven hours, however long it took to do the job. At the end of the job, I'd say, I'm not speaking for my employer. I was a subcontractor. I'm not speaking for the man who hired me. I'm speaking now for me. But if it would be okay with you, I'd like to share the best thing ever happened in my whole life. And they look at you again. I said, what was that? And I said, well, this gospel track tells you it's the gospel, uh, whatever they let me say. In all the years I worked, I only had one person, one woman, ever call into the store and say she was offended by that. Of all those years, just one. 
I believe it was right to do. It's a good work. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Work inherently means involvement and activity. Christianity, your religion, call it what you want. I don't believe it's a religion, but your Christianity is not private and not to be kept private. It's to be a public thing that you're not going around bragging how wonderful you are, and I'm talking about that, but you're doing biblically good works publicly before man. And and uh, some of the, I'll give you a, a public good work, is faith missions. All over the United States are things called faith missions. Those are for alcoholics, drug addicts. You've seen me probably got them in Boston. Some Christian faith missions. There was one in Elkhart or Chicago. Pacific Garden Missions, I think it was called, in, in Chicago, phenomenal. And I mean, just faith mission. That is done by Christians mostly that want to do a good work. They want to do good work. Now, people went in there and they got food, they got clothing, they got a shower, and they got the gospel. If they, didn't, if they wouldn't stay to hear the gospel, they didn't get the food, they didn't get the clothing, they didn't get the shower. It was a deal. You come in here and we'll give you these three things, but you got to set through a service uh, respectfully, and listen to the preacher preach. I preach. They asked me to do a few of those things in faith missions. I've preached a number of faith missions. Some in Greenville, some in Elkhart, Indiana, preaching faith missions. Some here, preaching faith missions, doing good work. That's a good work. Those faith missions. Right now we support Fort Myers Rescue Mission. They take people off the street. They have a woman's building where, uh, you know how hard it is on the street for a single homeless woman? Well, they, they if you if a woman, you'll go. To them, they'll put you in a safe environment, let you have a shower, a place to live, a nice clean bed to sleep on. They'll allow you to have three meals a day. you got to work. You have to work. You have to clean up around there. You have to have a job. Eventually, you got to go get a job. What they're trying to do is help you get saved. They give you the gospel, of course. If you get saved, and by the grace of God, you're going to learn better than to go out there and be a slave to sin, consequently be able to support yourself, and then eventually become not just a taker but a giver. That's the goal of Fort Myers Rescue Mission. We've supported Fort Myers Rescue Mission here for, ooh, 30 years, I'm pretty sure. 30 years we support them. It's a good work. That's a command of the Jesus Christ. And at this rate, I'm not even going to get two of them done. Well, I could go off on this one. The second command is found in Matthew 5.23. Be reconciled to your brother, then offer your gift to God. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar... And remember, that thy brother hath ought against thee. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, then come to offer the gift. That's in the imperative tense. It's a command. It's a command. Let me give you a third command. Love your enemies. Matthew, Matthew 5, 44. But I say unto you, Jesus said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that spitefully use you and persecute you. That's a command. That's one of the you know, commands of the New Testament. And boy, I got a lot to say about that, but that's not going to work out. Number four is give as in secrecy, as give as secretly as possible. Matthew chapter 6, verse 3. Well, when thou doest alms or give, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Try to keep it as private and as secret as possible. He says, thine alms that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. That is in the imperative tense. It's a command. 
Fifthly, do not be as the hypocrites in prayer, Matthew 6, 5. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. That's a command. It's imperative. For they that love to pray standing in synagogues and in the corners of the streets, they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their work. That's why we don't, I'm not real big in prayer meeting. We used to years ago have prayer meeting where one guy would stand up and pray, then another guy would stand up and pray, another man would stand up and pray. First of all, never gave the women a chance to pray. So I didn't seem right. So I thought when I became senior pastor, I said, we're going to do this a little differently. We're going to break off into little groups. What I liked about that was it kept it private. It wasn't uh, how good I can pray. One time I, they used to ask me to pray when I was younger uh, in a community Baptist church as assistant pastor down in the community. They'd ask me to pray from the pulpit. One time I had a person after, after church says, oh, you pray so well. I thought, that's not what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be for me. It's not supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be what we're saying, what we're praying. And I thought, man, am I doing it in such a way as to try to get personal glory? Am I praying in such a way as to try? No, I'm not doing that. I didn't want to do that. I didn't like that. Because why? It violated a known command of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let your prayer be in secret. He that seeth thee in secret shall reward the opening. The sixth, sixth command, and by the way, there's 127 of these. So I think we'll be out of here next two weeks from now. The sixth one, which I'm not going to comment about, lay up for your treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 19, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. That is in the imperative tense. It's a command. Don't be a fool and lay your treasures up on this side. And you know what he says in the last verse? He says, you put your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt nor thieves do not break through and steal, meaning they do here. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Hey, where the government doesn't just turn into, uh, uh, just stop printing money and go digital. Where they just wipe your 401ks or they just wipe, they have the power to do that. You realize if you have a war, they have the power to take everything you got. It's theirs. But they can't do that with the things you sent to heaven. They can't do that with the, with the obedience that you've done when God's asked you to do it. They can't do that to those folks who, who, sent their, who put their treasure. And he says, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Oh, my. That's a command. There's a hundred, I found, at least through the person I used and, and that helped me so much. There's 127 imperatives that we know of. There's probably more in the New Testament. 120. That doesn't mean the other things in the New Testament aren't to be obeyed. Oh, no, no, no. That just means they're not commands like that. They're truth that we need to know, and they're things that you need to know, but they're not direct commands from God. Well, may the Lord give us some insight in this. May it tweak you some. You say, well, how do I get all them 127 commandments? Read the New Testament through. If you read the New Testament through, you're going to have read every one of them. And I believe the Holy Spirit will let you know who's who and what's what. Father, help us tonight. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Bible. Ooh, we love the book. Help us, encourage us to be in obedience to thy Word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com. Or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. 
Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.